We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. On today's podcast, we are talking about addiction. Addiction from the perspective of a recovering addict. My guest today, Tracy Cates, is someone who lives with an addiction and has the incredible desire to help others understand addiction. She wants to help young women in addiction and pregnant find hope and support and share more about her sweet baby boy who helped her find strength and to find and seek sobriety to maintain it. We have separated Tracy's podcast into two separate releases and today you will hear her history with addiction, the challenges she faced every time she tried to maintain sobriety and her desire to have a full life with her kids. I'm so proud of Tracy and extremely touched Tracy's willing to share her experiences so that others may understand addiction and find the supports that they need. Thank you for joining us today as you open your heart to compassionately hear Tracy's words and story. I really want this to be your story and I want it told how you want it told. Um, I want us to highlight the things that you want to highlight. It's so impactful in our community. It's so impactful from person to person to families to um, to beyond. And so I, I'm just, first of all, I'm so really touched is. that you are willing to share your story. I really do want this to be your piece. You kind of guide me in the conversation. And obviously, if I ask a question and you're like, oh, Tamara, that is off limits. Do not, we're not going to go there. Um, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, just let me know because it's definitely about the healthy boundaries and, and making us, you know, making everybody feel safe and, um, and kind of creating that story that, that is going to be impactful for others. Well, I'll also say to that is you've always made it easy to feel safe, to, to be able to share a few things. And not a lot of people in my position feel that way towards people that have not dealt with addiction and finding out you're pregnant when you're in the middle of that addiction. And really you'd never been away from addiction once you realized like the full picture, you know? So having Liam was a game changer. He was definitely the plot twist in, in everybody's world here. Absolutely. And I'll just start from there. You know, I, I was thinking about the first time we met, you know, I was actually thinking about that the other day. And a lot of times when we are in the hospital and in our NICU environment, um, I typically don't have people just show up to the support group or just, you know, show up um, me not really having talked to them prior to, to the room. And I remember going to the support group or our gathering, you know, for, for whatever we, we did that day and meeting you for the first time. I hadn't met you bedside, but you were coming to the group. I remember that just being a very special moment for me because I don't know, it, it told me one, a lot about you, that you were ready to jump in and you knew what you needed and you knew that yeah. you needed some support to be able to get through yes. this very difficult NICU experience. So why don't you kind of 
touch base on a little bit. We'll let you share your story and why that that support group for that hard time was important. Okay, my name is Tracy, Tracy Kate. Um, I'm 43 now, single mom of three. They do all have different dads. The first one, I was, I graduated in college at the same year that I had her, so just a, f a few months after I had her. My addiction stepped into that marriage and it it helped rip it apart. So I went through some stuff there afterwards, a couple of run-ins with going to a mental facility, uh, suicide attempts. Got back here from Oklahoma City from doing time in sober living, which was amazing. Um, really, it was, I learned a lot during that time. I was in my 30s. Uh, I kicked the opiate, but went straight back, back to methamphetamine uh, intravenously. Been on doing that for a few years. Got into a horrible car wreck during that time. Uh, my family didn't know for about a day or so if I was going to live or die. And that was stemmed from my addiction. My friend fell asleep at the wheel after I'd, after I'd asked her to drive because I had been falling asleep at the wheel. <sighs> Fast forward to finding out that I was pregnant with Liam. I was in complete denial about it. And if you want me to be completely real, and I'm going to be just for all those mamas out there, I made the decision that day. I walked down to the pharmacy and bought a 10 bag of 100 cc syringes and a pregnancy test and came back to the house. I had friends here. I told them that I was pregnant and I proceeded to do a very large shot, a bump of dope. I was convinced in the body that I was in at that time and the, the brutality that I had been through and put my body through because that's exactly what it was. I mean, just disgraced myself in so many ways, was walking everywhere on my broken body. Uh, riding bikes, gambling, um, leaving my my older girls. She's 17 and 13 now. Then you can see, so they were younger. Leaving them alone. Uh, I just thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to have this baby. I was just so ashamed because I was in my addiction, of course. So literally I was in bed when, the night I found out I was pregnant and God, okay, we'll say God, uh, your higher consciousness uh, source, uh, your higher power, whatever you want to call it, told me you have to have this baby. It's going to change everyone's life. And that night I saw my grandmother in a dream who's deceased and she was holding a baby. I knew then that I was going to have to quit my drugs, my smoking, my gambling, my sleeping around a little bit and get my head back straight. It's never been on straight, guys. Seriously, from I started drugs at 17, I have a bachelor's in psychology. I graduated from high school. I was on the, the, the golf team in high school. I did, I've, I've been places, I've done things. I know where the silverware goes. It does not matter. <laughs> you know, addiction will touch everybody 
and it doesn't matter what kind of state you're in and some of us are only so blessed to get pregnant and want to keep that pregnancy ultimately change the course of a life and all the lives that were affected by Liam. He wasn't due until March. I'd found out in August, as well with my other girls. Uh, their birthdays are April and March. My birthday is April. So when I figured out his due date, I thought, it's kind of somebody telling me something in my mind. You know, I'm a huge numbers, you know, type of people. So, yeah, I knew he was supposed to be here. And then he came early, 29 weeks. You know, he was 11 weeks early the delivery was terrifying i actually had gone in on january 7th of 2019 um my dad was driving me everywhere i had gotten a car after my car accident and sold it so you know he was having to drive me to all my appointments and such it made him and i have more bonding time he and i had been in addiction together as well. Both of my parents, my mother is deceased because of her addiction. So Liam came in um, at 29 weeks, 2.8 ounces. I was going to convert that for grams for you, but I did not. <laughs> um, and he was 16.1 inches long. So he has some long legs <laughs> and he loved to kick that little leg out of the out of his little isolate, you know, bandaging, whatever they have there, you know. And so uh, it was terrifying. I was there all by myself in the labor delivery room. I'd been there since January 7th. He came January 10th at 11.10 in the morning. I was just sitting in the room having a nap and 10.44 snoozing. And one of the nurses comes bouncing in and throws some oxygen on me and said, everything's okay. We're just going to give you a little bit of oxygen. Four minutes later, okay, they, they did that about 11.06. And at 11.10, my, my son was born. I had gone completely under because I had back injuries from my wreck, hip injuries. I have no sensation in that part of my body and they had him out in four minutes the same day that the anesthesiologist came in and we talked about what we needed to do uh in case he had to come this way and so we decided i would go completely under that's a big thing that is a that's a big thing in a emergency c-section the last thing i remember the doctor saying was we are we're going to tie your tubes no matter what right we're tying and I was like, it takes a world of time and in a split second to realize what she's saying to you and asking you in that moment. If your baby dies, do you like, and you don't know this, you know, when you go under, do you still want your tubes tied? And it, I was just in complete shock because here I was, 4041. I didn't know I was wanted another baby. You know, and now that I knew that I had this baby and oh my God, he's coming early, what's gonna happen? 
do I really want to tie my tubes? Is that really what I want to do? You know, but that's what I ultimately decided because I trusted the doctors and I trusted God, Jesus, myself, that I would be okay. You know, that everything was going to be okay. And, and it was, here he is. Like I said, he came, they had him out in four minutes. That just still blows my mind. Just to recap, Liam Edward Rubin was born January 10th, 2020 at 11.10 a.m. at 2.8 ounces, 16.1 inches. And it was actually two pounds, eight ounces, right? I'm sorry, two pounds, eight ounces. Yes. As you tell your story, you, you even addressed that you started the addiction process back when you were 17. Um, yes. And, and yet you accomplished graduating high school. You accomplished your bachelor's degree. You were living a really good life with addiction. Maybe talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Okay. So let's just, I'll give a little bit of just a little history. Dad uh, was making really, really good money as, some, as a supervisor. Mom was a teacher and she was dealing with her addictions um, you know, doctor hopping, uh, that type of thing. Uh, you would go out with your teacher friends, happy hour. And so that's what mom did. That was in the eighties. You know, that's what you did. Uh, one of my first memories ever of being with my parents, I was actually drunk. I had gotten a hold of a bottle of champagne that they had left out and I can remember jumping flips on the couch and I can remember dad trying to get me up the next morning to go to the cotton bowl parade and I was hung over. I can remember that. <clears throat> so that's one of my first memories as a child. It just kind of starts right off the bat. You know, to me, it just kind of sets the tone of, of what my childhood might look like and what my adulthood, you know, could be. My grandpa was an attorney and Mimi was a housewife. Mom had everything. Uh, I had just about everything, you know. Dad was providing. He was around, but not around. He was in Texas. So ultimately, I ended up doing drugs with both of my parents at some point in our lives. You know, I know I got through high school and I did all these cool things. I went to my state golf competition with a gram of methamphetamine in my pocket. I got through, but with a little help with my friends, those friends weren't my friends, they were drugs. And that's how I got through everything that I excelled at. That's the crazy part is, you know, all of my studying that I did in college, I was high until I found out I was pregnant with Lily. And that she kind of set the the tone for the next, but still after her, you know, I turned to Darvisette, drinking on the weekends. I was working. I had a car. You know, I'd go out. Grandma and dad, they keep little Lily sometimes, and I could go out and do whatever I wanted to do. You know, I was 26, I guess. I was fighting it, you know, these urges. It was still there. I, you know, I, and I have a dual diagnosed uh, diagnosis as well. That's really important for um, people to understand is I am dealing with addiction and mental health issues. You know, 
that's a toss up of uh, which one stems from the other. So you have to treat both. And, you know, a lot of times mental patients, we like to self-medicate. Um, I went through a lot in my home life growing up with my, my Mimi and my mom. That's how I grew up with with my grandmother that was not my biological grandmother but it was never you know that was just in the back that was something that was just kind of really bothered my mom and i'm on a quest now to to hopefully find out more about her and and know more about that side so that's in the future but the moment i could get away i ran down here in hopes that i could get could get away this was in the early 2000s and so really that's when I started to really use meth intravenously, ecstasy was around, all of it. I could get access to all of it and it didn't matter what it was, I took it, okay? This was before Lily, this was my college days. It just, college, she's in college. No, it's, it's just continuing, you know? And my grandparents, everybody was just the most horrible enabler. I'm sorry, but they were, you know, money to my family was, is, I'm going to say was uh, everything just about, you know what I mean? It's just so uh, pretentious and false that I see that now, you know, it's so fake. That's how I felt the whole time, just kind of growing up. Like everything is just like, this is not who I am. I don't, you know, I'm not uh, this institutionalized type person that, that, that does these things. I, I want to do something different, you know? And I, I know that sounds probably cliche, but uh, I mean, that's honestly how I felt, but I did what, what everybody I felt wanted me to do, you know? So I got my degree. And I got a job at a doctor's office, and this is after Lily. Then fast forward, uh, had met Lainey's dad. I was on medication when we decided to start things. When I say medication. So, we, so you were on medication for? I was mixed, missed. Okay, so this was in the, before Lily, I was pregnant with Lily, but yes, but after my Oklahoma City and still during my college days, okay attempted to kill myself with a gun and it was the safety was on. I had been up for countless days. I weighed 87 pounds when I went into the mental facility at Midwest City. And so, yes, coming out of there, you know, all these little things, you know, even dealing with babies that just stem your addiction that you really have time to, in hindsight, go back and think about. Yes. Yeah, so coming out of there, dad and grandma come and swoop me up from Oklahoma City. They saved me. I come home, get on my meds for the, for the depression, the mania. And at that time, that is about the time for all of that to, to onset at that age, that type of, you know, disorders, behavioral type stuff. You were talking earlier about the enabling piece. And so, you know, can you maybe identify some of those things that you are thinking, oh, that was definitely enabling. Oh, that was enabling. enabling. Oh my goodness, that was enabling. You know, number one, my parents doing drugs with me. You know, dad bringing down ounces of weed and, you know, it's not that big of a deal now about that. But in hindsight, that was a bad deal back then. You know, I was just a kid. I was 19 and I thought it was cool. You know, I can remember leaving the house 
with a brick of weed, you know, and I'm 19, 20 years old, and it's a brick of weed that my dad had brought down for me, you know, and that was just the mildest drug. That was just one thing. Money. I mean, I was the only child, you know, between my mom and dad. I could talk my way into anything, out of anything, uh, with grandpa on mom's side being an attorney and uncle being a judge. Any legal thing I was involved in as a teenager was swept away for the most part. They would give me money and it didn't matter. I had money. But I wanted money for drugs. I had to have money for drugs. So the things that I wanted, like materialistic things, the lies that I would say, uh, you know, even after the kids were born, this is for Lillian Laney, or I got to have money for da 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 when I was in school. Quarter paper back then was $25. A quarter sack of weed was $25. Pack of cigarette was less than $5. And some gas in the tank you know to go run around i had that i needed money for those things uh is what they thought but i was using it for drugs it was just easy they were so enabling and they just wanted to see me happy that's all that that my grandparents and my dad and my mom that's all they wanted and was to see me happy and to them money kind of equaled that all of my things that I have all of my things uh that stem from my addiction that stem from the trauma that put me in my addictions that's hard for me to even say because I don't even know like what not enabling is <laughs> the sad part is when they finally put their foot down is like legit when I needed them the most because I had they had to pump my stomach and like get me in an ambulance and get me to Oklahoma City. I was seriously just so alone, you know, and this was the second suicide attempt, uh, third actually after Lainey was born. So this is in between Liam and you know, now and uh, then. So this was the early 2000s is when this was. And mom died then. My husband divorced me. That was the full swing of the opiate epidemic. We just didn't know it. We didn't realize it. You know, some of us, that's how mom died. You know, dad was still in it. That I mean, the doctors were just pushing them. And so they were easy to get on the street. They were easy to get at the doctors at that time. So that was like a huge... Uh, then came that addiction for me. And my, my mom is the one that really enabled that with me. We, She knew how to get the pills, you know. She she had Percocets and Lortab. And I used to hate them. I used to hate those when I was in high school. I wanted meth. But then after the girls, I don't know. It's like, I, I wasn't going to do meth, you know. But my gosh, uh, the opiates, they sure did help take the pain and the edge off of trying to get stuff done and then my doctor gave me diet pills on top of that so yeah that just started a whole string of crap and that's when mom died divorce happened moved back that was horrible get back down here have another suicide attempt and then finally two sober living and then back down here so what happened in sober living why didn't you stay sober after sober living tracy okay so let's talk about that okay so this was the mid 2000s 2011 
thought I was like, yes, okay. I had one of the, the worst suicide. Uh, I was just done, you know, and they brought me back. So I was really going to do this. I had six, seven months of just complete sobriety. Nothing, nothing in my system at all. Okay. And so I'm managing a sober living house at this point. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the top dog in the house, you know, so I'm telling the girls when to be home. I'm, they have to answer to me and I have to answer to my other house manager and you know what I mean? So it's a huge responsibility that I was put with and I had never felt so empowered in all of my life. I knew that that was something that I wanted to do was, you know, be in sober living. Somebody saw something in me with, in regards to that, I wanted to be that, you know, and, and that's how a sponsor should be. If you're in the program, that's, you want to emulate what that sponsor is doing. I, and how did I get to be that manager to that house? This wasn't a paid gig. I got a little bit off my rent, I think, you know. And it wasn't like I got more freedom. This was an actual sober house. I want that to. Ladies are for real. They don't mess around like some of these other sober houses. So um, I've had to, I had to kick out a, a woman that was high on PCP, you know, when I was a manager and deal with the police then. It was just a, it was a huge thing, you know, and so um, fast forward to about February or so in sober living, you know, uh, looking good. I've been walking, lost some weight. I think I was the only person in there that lost weight. Uh, but yeah, so I was so proud of myself looking healthy. Uh, a friend of mine, she and I and another friend were on the way to uh, Jersey Mike's before a house meeting. It was a Tuesday and we were sideswiped by a woman in a van. We were, I was in the front seat. It was a 3000 GT car. I did not have my seatbelt on. Girl in the back did not have her seatbelt on, but we were sober, but it was a tiny car, you know, when we were just going to go get a sandwich. So we were sideswiped and I was the one that ended up with a broken foot, really weird places they said. And that night I walked out of the ER with a script of opiates. They gave me 120 pills. They, you know, from, and I sat there and I asked them like, can we, can I not something, you know, I even asked for tramadol and, and now tramadol is just the same if they put it as a class A, uh, I believe. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I was back on the opiates in sober living. I tried everything. I would throw my pills up in the top of my closet because I had a broken foot. So I couldn't get to them. I would try to make it hard on myself. I couldn't give my pills to any of the girls. Um, the, we suggested maybe getting a lockbox and putting them in there, but really they just kind of left it up to me to, and I'm not blaming them. I'm not blaming anyone there. That The girls knew, the girls knew that were living with me that I was abusing those pills. And, by that time, my daughter had been in my cousin's temporary custody for a year. 
I wanted to stay in Oklahoma City. I wanted to bring Lily to Oklahoma City and because that's where my support group was. Uh, no matter what my state was at that time, um, I was employed. But my family was insistent on me coming back down here. And I knew I had to. My other daughter, Lainey, she was down here. Uh, I got back down here and found a job. I was super excited. It was a bar. We had would have uh, live concerts. I was, was my first real waitressing ever gig. And I was not bad at it. I made pretty good money. And, you know, some of the, it's a... The food industry is a cutthroat industry. I mean, and the girls would get jealous, you know, and I was doing all this in a boot with a boot on my foot. But I was also sneaking down to the liquor or to the beer cooler and chugging whatever I could get, Dos Equis or Michelob or whatever was closest. And I could get down to ease the pain of my foot because it was just throbbing. By this time, I had already betrayed my best friend here. Her very generous mother had given me a job at their store, which was like a dream kind of mine and still is. I was able to work at her store uh, and was on opiate medication, as was I, but my doctor had cut me off by this time, or I was knew it was going to happen, and so I was stealing pills from hers. I finally got caught. At the time, my best friend was planning her wedding. I was to, I had actually gotten fitted for my bridesmaid's dress, and she had to ask another friend to wear that dress at her wedding because I had messed that up. But I went to church with these people. Fast forward to this suboxone time. I'm doing it right, trying to. Um, but they, they too provide somewhat of a little high if you increase your dose a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Because initially, the first time you do take it, you do get that opiate high. And it's like none other. If I were to take an opiate while I was on that medication, it would make me violently ill. <laughs> By the time it was time for me to come off my Suboxone completely, I had scheduled a tonsillectomy. I was 38 years old having a tonsillectomy because it was keeping me from going to work. I was having strep throat all the time. Always had ear problems. So they took me off the Suboxone. The doctor that did my tonsillectomy had prescribed me liquid codeine, you know, because I could. <laughs> so see, it was just like this. I it, No matter, it was some sort of event that would usually throw me back into my addiction cycle. Um, and then after that starts, after that, it's just survival mode because you're trying to survive, you know, getting back to where you can function on that drug again and just function period i lost my job where i was going to vegas and i just gotten a decent pay raise for a female paid vacations and all that little bonuses but it was a job you know i was kind of proud of it like i said it's a huge company i lost that job due to all the things that were just piling up against me um you know i'd missed because of the surgery but i was also back dabbling in methamphetamine because i couldn't 
get any more Lortab after that liquid codeine. So the friend that I normally would have bought pills from, he could not get the pills either. And he was able to get meth. And so I had an eight ball of dope in my pocket that night. And that's how I got to work the following week because my, my sick time was over. I had to get back to work and I was still in pain. I could barely talk. I was still in pain for car wreck that I'd had a few years back, you know, my foot. Anyway, I'm back in my addiction with meth. Uh, this time it's a good one. You know, I'm just hardcore doing acid again. Whatever I can get my hands on. I'm left out here to fend for myself after losing my job. I'd gotten a notification from DHS. They were coming for a home visit. Luckily, my daughter was in Texas during this time with my stepsister. I ended up in this car wreck. Life flighted down to Plano, Texas. Broke my back, my hip, all my ribs. My eyeball had popped out of my head. They didn't know if I was going to be able to walk again. They didn't know if I was alive or dead. I thought I was getting sober. I really did. And then I was just got miserable because all I wanted to do then was use. You know, I was here by myself trying to teach myself how to walk again. In hindsight, like now I see was a huge, huge spiritual awakening. And Liam was the point of attraction for that. He, he changed everything. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. And I don't know why. I don't know why he did. You know, some other event didn't. Um, but it was the worst part of the addiction I'd ever been in my life. It was bad. And getting sober with Liam was the hardest thing I've ever done. I just want people to understand this timeline. The things that had ultimately made me decide to have Liam, you know, in my addiction, in the addiction side of it. I just want to pause our conversation with Tracy at this point, and we will release the rest of our podcast with her tomorrow. I would like to bring awareness to a specialized program Oklahoma offers to pregnant women with an addiction. It's called the STAR Prenatal Program. STAR stands for Substance Use Treatment and Recovery, and they offer a prenatal clinic at the OU Health Science Center. Oklahoma's STARS program is designed to increase the well-being of and improve permanency outcomes for children and families affected by or exposed to opioids or other substances during pregnancy. As part of their efforts, the STAR Prenatal Clinic provides comprehensive specialized prenatal care for women with substance use disorders in pregnancy and a collaborative environment with an emphasis on coordination of care with supportive psychosocial services and substance use treatment providers. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to sharing more about Tracy's premature delivery and how she's doing with her recovery and maintaining her sobriety on tomorrow's podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405 271-5072.